Hello listeners, welcome to the first episode of Naive No More, a podcast by uh, two IIT Guwahati mathematics graduates who are on a journey of collecting the most naive doubts from a variety of people and inviting the best guests across different industries to make sure that we can answer the growing curiosity of this universe. We truly are lifelong learners and hope that this podcast will be able to add a lot of value to your lives too. For the first episode today, we have with us Himanshu Upreti, co-founder and CTO at AI Palette. Manchu also happens to be our college senior and graduated from IIT Guwahati in 2015. He started off as an engineer at Visa Data Labs and then moved on to start his own company. Uh, he has mentored and guided us on previous occasions too. This time, we want to scale our discussion to an even bigger perspective. So uh, thank you, Himanshu, for taking the time to join Shashwat and I for our first episode of Naive No More today. Yeah, thank you so much, guys, for the lovely introduction. Excited to be here. Okay. So, uh, by the way, to all the listeners, we have another discussion with Himanshu, which revolves around undergrad related advice. So if you're interested in that, you can check out the link in the episode description. Uh, so Himanshu, Shashwat and I are going to drop multiple questions today. And we hope that the future founders or the future technical leaders uh, listening to this will have a great time and learn a lot listening to this episode. So mm-hmm. yeah. can, we, can we just start with a quick intro from you? and a brief intro about what AI Palette is and how are you managing things during this quarter time. Sure, sure. So, hi listeners, I am Himanshu and as the introduction has been told earlier, I did my graduation from IIT Guwahati in Mathematics and Computing and that was in 2015. Post that, I worked in Visa for three years. I was in the Visa Data Labs, which is uh, the data division of the big organization Visa, where I was essentially working on the data engineering and also on building models on top of the big data that Visa contains, which is essentially the financial data, right? From the time you swipe your card to the time that you receive the authorization on the same. So I was there for three years Uh, during my tenure. I had a great uh, experience there. I was working on the open source technologies on the predictive models and whatnot. And post that um, I decided to essentially uh, join the path of entrepreneurship. And that's where the AI palette started. And that's how the AI palette started. So I found my co-founder in Singapore and uh, both of us have started this initiative called AI palette, where we essentially help the FMCG companies in generating new product concepts. So what I mean by that is, let's say if Coca-Cola tomorrow wants to launch a new drink in the Singapore market, a platform is going to tell them what kind of drink they should be launching. We do this based on the millions of data points uh, that are out there. Uh, and these are not just on the social media, but on the restaurant, cafes, retail products, etc. And then we combine it with the brand personality of that particular brand to generate the product concepts. And we do this at scale by working across the different food categories and different languages, which is where our key core technologies of the AI, such as NLP, which we use for the multiple languages, as well as the computer vision to identify the food and other related categories from the images comes handy. And it's been uh, close to two years now since we started AI Palette. And so far, it's been a journey uh, full of ups and downs. Uh, of course, in a startup, uh, everybody expects it to be up, but uh, I can tell you with guarantee that obviously there are going to be the down moment as well. So it's been an exciting journey, uh, nevertheless. Uh, we have scaled up to two geographies now and over 20 member team, which is across in Singapore and Bangalore. So um, right now we are uh, we have already raised a seed round, uh, so we are not looking for any funding per se. And uh, in terms of the investors, we are backed by the government of Singapore, um, which is through the SG Innovate. And apart from it, 
uh, AgFunder, which is a Silicon Valley-based food tech VC firm. And apart from it, Entrepreneur First and uh, Decagon Capital, which is a Singapore-based investor. So that's more or less about me. And I guess we'll get to learn more as and when we go through with this session. Great. Awesome intro, Himanshu. Uh, yeah. So the first question for the day uh, probably takes you back to the days when you first fell in love with machine learning and AI. So you did an internship in your junior year at IIM Kolkata, where you worked with news categorizations and uh, you have done a lot of uh, MWOCs too. So the question is, at what point did you know you were going in, going to get into the MLAI field? And uh, so what got you interested in this field and what got you to stay all these years? Right. Uh, quite an interesting question and a relatable one as well. And uh, to be honest, it makes me uh, walk down the memory lane uh, all of a sudden. So I guess it was in 2014 when I essentially did my internship from the IM Calcutta. And uh, that was one of the early exposures where I essentially got into the text mining or the data modeling, which was uh, really emerging during that time of the period. Uh, my project, particularly during that time, was to bunch together the news stories to essentially uh, do the clustering and then from there uh, identify what are the kind of clusters that are there to help in the faster decision making. And this was one of the first exposures to AI. Uh, the other exposure that I got was during my BTEC thesis project. Uh, again, during that time, I was researching for a variety of potential ideas. And those were the days when, you know, technology and machine learning was picking up a new wave of, you know, predictive modeling, computer vision and cloud computing. Mm -hmm. And after much research, I essentially, um, like, you know, stumbled across this topic of intraday volatility prediction of stock prices and indexes, which was very interesting. And uh, thanks to my mentor, uh, who was uh, Siddharth Chakrabarti. He was one of the esteemed professors and one of the cool ones as well at MNC in IIT Guwahati. And he really helped me out in, you know, properly framing that question, helping me out in the MLB six and essentially providing a foray into what exactly this whole big field is about. Uh, as a project itself, when I was doing it, it gave me uh, idea and exposure into prediction using ERIMA modeling, which then later expanded into regression modeling and whatnot. And to be honest, I was really excited with the possibilities of like, you know, how do you even predict the future of economy by digging into past patterns and the huge amount of data that's around there. And uh, it was also during that time when there was the advent of the social media. So there was this alternative data that was coming up, which essentially could determine the sentiment and then subsequently the impact on the index prices. So this all like, you know, culminated in a huge interest in this field. And for me as a young learner, I felt like, you know, I could really see myself five to 10 years working in this particular domain and working in this particular kind of problems. And apart from it, of course, I was pursuing the several MOOC courses, uh, including the famous one by Andrew NG, uh, founder of Coursera. And uh, I think that was more, these were more like the foundation bricks, which essentially built my interest house, which later culminated into the rest of my career choices, including choosing Visa for career, and then later on starting a deep tech AI startup. So I would say it's a small steps, which, you know, later on contributed to me going and getting interested and getting hooked on to data science as a career. Right. 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 Awesome. Awesome. So just a fun fact, I too, am doing my uh, project right now with Siddharth sir, and I can hundred percent vouch that he's the call coolest professor out there. <laughs> right, right. I know. Right. Yep. Yeah. And it's very important so, to have a cool professor because 
I mean, um, like the kind of pressure that you usually get in these kind of projects is, is immense. So it's really important that apart from like, you know, the learning uh, possibilities, you also get like the coolness factor into your project. Yeah, yeah true, true. So I want to continue this discussion about your early career right now. You joined Visa right after college and Visa Data Labs was just starting up right there in Bangalore. How do you feel about better quoted, how can you explain the importance of early employees in defining the culture and values of the organization? Also, how much ownership is generally provided to fresh grads in these big tech giants? Okay. There used to be some sort of uh, noise on your end. Can you repeat that question, please? Uh, Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, is it fine now? It's too loud now. Yeah, it's, it's, okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, is it fine now? Yeah. 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 Much better. Yeah. Okay. Sorry for that. So uh, yeah, I'm just going to repeat my question. So uh, you joined Visa right after college. Visa Data Labs was just starting up right there in Bangalore. How do you feel that, uh, or how can you explain the importance of early employees in defining the culture and values of the organization? Also, how much ownership is generally provided to fresh grads in these big tech giants? Right. Interesting question. Um, I would say. Okay, coming back to like, you know, firstly, uh, the first part about the visa, how the early days were there, right? So definitely they were the interesting times. Uh, like you mentioned, I joined right when the visa data labs in Bangalore was established. Now, uh, this particular visa Bangalore was the third tech office globally after the US and Singapore. And uh, our batch itself was one of the first or the early hires uh, in the visa Bangalore office. And more importantly, I was in visa data labs, which was like, you know, seeing the shift from the decade old technologies such as Urban Issue and other to more of the open source technologies like Hadoop stack. So I would say in a hindsight, it was quite a startup-ish in nature. Uh, many of the things were like moving at a really, really fast pace, which is very different for a big organization, to be honest. And uh, that is where I was introduced to a more furnished combination of big data and machine learning. And the sheer amount of the data size itself used to run in petabytes right from the, you know, the time that you swipe your car to making a purchase, we have all of that data, of course, encoded. <laughs> so uh, right from uh, engineering the stuff to building models on top of it, I think all of us got the opportunity to work on it. And in terms of the ownership, yes, definitely. Uh, we did not have a well-defined hierarchy, to be honest. Uh, for example, the manager that I was reporting to was 15 plus years of experience uh, directly, right? So there wasn't any intermediate hierarchy. And it was that kind of a openness culture at Visa, which really gave us the motivation and, you know, the uh, way for uh, learning more and more. So that is uh, that was like one of the like things which I really liked about the visa engineering culture, to be honest. And that is what we are also trying to propagate here at AI Pilot. Now coming to the question of how exactly, how, how important it is for the early employees to set a culture. Well, it is really, really crucial in my opinion, uh, because the first few employees are what makes and breaks your company. Uh, and the kind of culture that they essentially build or contribute to is what is going to be adopted by the rest of your employees. And at Visa, uh, I, we, and I mean, I, and like, you know, the we as a group were really lucky to have like really amazing set of people to work around with. So, I mean, the whole Visa data labs itself was constituted of different, different sections and every section without any silos used to work collaboratively with each other. 
and that's the reason that visa data labs was one of the best groups that was out there in terms of the collaboration there used to be a collaboration for multiple projects and multiple stakeholders would be involved and roped in from each of those separate divisions so i think in terms of uh, any early stage startup that's that's really important that the kind of uh, culture that the early employees are setting in uh, has to be really really well uh, written so that other employees follow the same the other important uh, thing is of course the exponential growth curve so when i joined at visa there was a lot more focus given to the patents and the trade secrets uh, especially during the early years now this was really really um, important because it fosters that courage of like you know researching for the problems and not just going with what other people are telling you right so you try to question the uh, things and you know basically like why should we use this technology why not this and that particular question of why is what gives the germination of the entrepreneurship seed in you so that was and we were really lucky to experience that in my time at visa and i myself was fortunate enough to file two trade secrets during my tenure and in fact this is the kind of uh, exact culture that we are also trying to recreate at ai palette uh, we have already filed for a provisional patent for example and even couple of trade secret internal products we have shipped and uh, i think that was my learning or the take away from visa as well that you know how how exactly the early uh, in the early days it's really important to foster your early employees towards a culture of research where they ask the question of why and like you know just not follow the orders right so that's that's uh, really important yeah yeah and i answer your question correctly what did i miss out hello hello yeah hello yeah bhaiya yes i yeah. also saw you uh, like one the above and beyond award uh, in visa right i mean that can only happen if you're like truly happy in some company so yeah 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 i think definitely awards are uh, one of the main factors but uh, apart from it i think uh, one of the major factors that internally uh, should come is the satisfaction of whether you are learning or not and at visa definitely i think i had exponential growth curve in terms of the technologies that i learned and i was at this intersection where visa was really moving away from like you know the legacy old softwares to more of the uh, open source systems so it really gave me a insight into how exactly all this happens and especially with the tie up to the big data and the evolving machine learning modeling around it it mm -hmm. gave me like a really good exposure right 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 uh okay yeah so uh, one of the things that really interesting about you is uh, like your zeal for extracurriculars so i mean you read a lot of books and you know you have extensively described your creative experience on your profile as well and even at visa yeah. you were a part of multiple teams that organized events and all so this is a nice change of pace because you know the default assumption is always that the tech guy would be kind of coding away in a dark room right <laughs> so right, like right. what are your thoughts on following your non tech interests and just doing these other things that you get joy out of i mean do you feel that you know taking ownership of managing events and all this plays into your entrepreneurial side as well right i think uh, definitely a very relevant uh, question uh, to be honest uh, the extra curriculars in my opinion are really really important because of one major factor which is the networking now uh, many might question that you know what is the use of networking why do you even need to do it there are so many negatives around the same i mean as far as the positives are as well right so what my belief is that the network is of course your net worth uh the as per the law of averages you are the average of the five people that you spend the most of your time with mm -hmm. 
and to be honest even i didn't realize this until late years of my college life but i guess once i did it really helped me a lot in my final year and subsequent life at the visa data labs mm-hmm. uh in college i was majorly involved in acumen which was the quiz club of iit guwahati yeah you were I, right yep yep so i was the uh, quiz club secretary over there uh in my final year and uh, to be honest i always felt like now in retro in retrospective of course but i always felt like quiz club was very much similar to the startup right uh, because in common to both you don't have any preset path so more innovations you need to keep bringing in more products you need to ship out in order to make and garner the consumer interest so for example i like you know we targeted like niche quizzes based on popular topics like harry potter game of thrones startups etc and which was essentially identified on the need of the customers like you know what exactly the potential consumers or in this case quizzers want and then we essentially like you know would ship out a particular product which in this case would be a quiz uh we even came up with the concept of quiz week where it was a week gala dedicated to the multiple quiz themes and that also received quite a buzz in the campus and apart from it of course like you know how do you project your idea and vision to procure the funds uh from the authorities that that also kind of helps you in the fundraising process if you like you know consider it in the startups and also another important piece is building a strong core team so akin to how the early employees define your startup uh building a very strong core team in your club really helps you in the longer run and i was really happy and i was like lucky in that uh, aspect that i got like an amazing core team uh, with me who won and bagged like several laurels at the various quiz competitions and really helped in um, like you know the overall health of the community in the club Mm-hmm. um and then apart from it uh, at visa essentially from my first day onwards i was involved in multiple initiatives and uh, it really helped me you know in building my network across the higher management and the other teams uh one of the uh, i think one of the stand out initiatives was we speakers the toastmasters club of visa which is doing pretty amazing these days by the way uh, i was involved in the initiation and the official instantiation of the club and also led the club myself to bag multiple awards at the district level uh, so for those of you who don't know what toastmasters is it's a, a non-profit uh, public community uh, which essentially is for the public speaking and uh, like I, if you are already not have if you don't have a toastmasters club in your college or at your corporate i would highly suggest that you try to establish one because it will really help you in the longer run uh, but anyway coming back to the topic so i guess it really uh, helped me in my personal growth as well it helped me fight the stage fright over time and add valuable lessons in my way of conversation with others and uh, and you know um, like in college it is very still easier as compared to corporate where you can convince the people to start your club or procure funds but in corporate it's a very different ball game altogether so i think uh, for me also trying to pitch this idea of we speakers or the visa toastmasters club to the higher authorities and you know encouraging everyone to participate that really helped me in like you know the overall uh, management and um, like you know the other skills that really helped me that are helping me now in the in my own startup right so it's not just about uh, starting something and getting involved in it i think the key takeaways uh, which come are also your own personal growth which is very very crucial mm-hmm. so i i would say that you know the extracurriculars are definitely important 
but of course you should not overdo anything right uh, the excess of anything is bad so while you should focus on your code uh, but at the same time you should also try to have a um, like you know extra curricular my uh, preset or the uh, thing in your mind that was yeah that is why i think answer. i hadn't thought of this like analogy i would be, i would be getting such a good analogy about clubs and startups i i mean right i never right. really thought right. about it that way yeah it's more of a in a hindsight to be honest um, like even i didn't think about it but <laughs> only when you look back at the things you realize that okay how much of startup or the entrepreneurship skill you were actually garnering while doing that yeah yeah right so extending just a bit on the last point i think that is why they are known as extra curriculars right because uh, that is something that you have to focus uh, after you were focusing right on your curriculum right true true okay so let's change the flow of our conversation and dive deeper into your entrepreneurship stint now how difficult do you think it has been to uh, you know make a product that satisfies the demands of the consumer the reason why this question i feel is so much more important to you and your company is that you're a first time entrepreneur your customers are undoubtedly the biggest corporations of this world and fmcg is such a traditional market for any startup to enter right right Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess uh, that's that's again a very uh, good question. Uh, let me um, before I uh, talk about like you know how exactly can you do it as an entrepreneur? Let me tell you how it is different from doing or building a product at a big organization. Now, when you're building a product in a very big organization, say you're building something at Google or Microsoft, you already have many of the things that are already done. and you have learnings from the past so for example the things like customer discovery product ideation uh, the market research and all everything will be handily available to you so you kind of half of the work of you is already done and then what you essentially need to do is then you know essentially come up with what kind of problem would what kind of product would essentially solve the particular problem that you're trying uh, but as an entrepreneur the things get really really uh, different right because you are starting from scratch so you don't have to just build the product but you have to actually discover the product you have to identify what is exactly the market need what are the pain points what are the kind of product features you should be building and all that right and at ef i learned this uh, concept called the mom test which essentially came from uh, one of the books that i read the mom test now the mom test uh, as a name sounds is uh, more, more of related to like you know how exactly you try to identify um, the pain points of your potential customers and without pitching your idea right so it's more to understand what kind of problem your customers potentially might have and using that by talking to multiple customers you try to form a common thread so that you can essentially identify where that pain point is uh, now mom test is uh, really really simple and i would highly recommend to all the listeners to give this book a read uh, i think it definitely helped me in my customer discovery and uh, journey process and uh, coming specifically to ai pilot uh, with me and my co-founder we talked with over 50 plus customers potential customers which range from the big organizations to the smallest of the startups and even the mid uh, mid sized companies and there was this common thread that we found that okay identifying what product next to launch in the market is a very very big pain point for them even though we did not pitch ai pilot as a solution to them we just tried to ask them what are the kind of problems that they face in their day to day life without uh, pitching any solution as such right and that's really really important understanding your customers uh, inside out especially when you're building a b2b is uh, like crucial to you because b2b is 
where your product is going to define how their day-to-day -day life changes. So it becomes really, really important that you understand exactly how their day-to-day -day currently goes and where is it that essentially you as a startup can contribute. So I would say uh, that's that's one of the important things that you start uh, that you like you know start doing if in case you already have an idea that try to bounce it off your potential customers by not pitching your solution but trying to understand their problems even better and the other piece uh, for the b2c side would be of course like you know um, how you could gauge the interest of the potential customers could be by building a landing page or like you know trying to do some marketing uh, campaign and see how many people are actually showing interest in this kind of thing so there are multiple and numerous ways uh, of dealing with it in B2B and B2C scenario. Uh, but the bottom line is that you have to understand your customer before you actually build your product, right? Even, even when you just have an idea, you should try to bounce it off because there are very highly likely chances that the idea you have and what the customers want might be completely different. So you really need to keep on evolving your customer uh, pain point discovery and everything. And once you get that right, I think then building the product and then uh, shipping out and scaling is going to be pretty, it's going to be very, very quick. And uh, then you essentially need to find the best team to build that product and you will uh, do really well. But I think, okay, sorry. Yeah, but I think the major uh, piece should be on focusing on identifying where exactly is that pain point. And once you identify that, then uh, rest of the work is almost there and done. Got it. Okay. So yeah, I just started with Montes this morning. Uh, I it's okay. going to be it's going to be the book of the next week for me. And and I found this book while I was researching about you uh, using the last episode that we recorded. So read about twenty pages so far, and uh, the narrative on which the book uh, is based on is actually pretty amazing. Mm. Yep. Yep. I know, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So, I mean, just extending on the last point, I mean, it's, uh, it's the idea portion is so difficult because you have to identify the hidden needs of the customers, right? I mean, uh, sometimes the needs are not explicit and like, uh, for example, for Uber, uh, nobody had like asked for someone to build an app to call taxis, right? So, I mean, the hidden yep. needs portion is like really difficult. Yeah. And I think, yeah, some of the needs actually come up from your personal experience as well. Uh, for example, I think in Uber, the founders themselves realized that there is a need for a cab and they themselves were not able to find one. Similarly for the Airbnb also, the story goes that uh, the founder was uh, like, you know, not able to find like a housing and that's how he essentially decided to lease their own uh, house to the, like, you know, the visitors who were really visiting that city. So sometimes the, uh, the ideas actually come from the personal experiences. Uh, especially in the B2C, I have found that uh, to be happening like a lot. In B2B, mostly the ideas, again, come from a personal experience because you have actually worked in that particular company or you come from that particular domain. So you have some kind of understanding of that domain. Uh, for example, in AI Pilot's case, my co-founder comes from the FMCG domain. So he already has some idea about the kind of pain points that he himself experienced when he was in that industry. And based on which you can essentially build a hypothesis, but then again, you need to test your hypothesis across the multiple customers before you go ahead and start building a product. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, sometimes things just become uh, viral as well, right? Because it's very difficult to determine how the human nature is going to pan out. Uh, TikTok, for example, I don't think nobody expected it, uh, but yeah. now it's all over the world. So sometimes things happen crazily, but then again, there are certain cases in which the 
idea germinates from the necessity of it. So those are the cases that you should keep an open eye out on. Right. Yeah. So I think uh, we have one very nice quote from Steve Jobs also about this: that people don't know what they want until you show it to them. So yeah. I think it's particularly uh, pretty clear from his experience also, which is why he has made this quote, I guess. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Moving on to the next question. Uh, Himanshu, one thing I think keeps people away from entrepreneurship is that, I mean, there is no fixed path to it. Right. And this is where talking to people like you help who have uh, trodden that path. So now there are multiple questions I'm going to throw at you and maybe, I mean, uh, I don't know, you can bunch them into like a combined answer. So, okay. Sure. okay. So firstly, like what exactly is the process after you have an idea? I mean, do you build a team and the product first or do you talk to people, et cetera? Right. Okay. So uh, are you talking about having an idea as a single person or you are saying you have a team already and then you have an idea? Uh, I mean, even if we have a team, then uh, should the team build the product first or should they go and talk to people or I mean, right. yeah, both of these scenarios right. essentially. Got it. Okay, cool. So I think uh, the first step uh, for me, uh, to be honest, would be the discovery of that phase that whether this idea that you have come up with actually matters to somebody or not. Right. So even if you can uh, find like hundred people who can vouch for this particular idea, who feel that they have a need for this kind of product that you are going to build, I think uh, that should be your job half done. So essentially doing the mom test is what I would recommend. Uh, identifying the potential customers and trying to see a common thread in the pain point that they have. And then from there on, you try to build the kind of MVP or the product which can solve that particular problem. And obviously uh, you won't be able to like, you know, do it like in a matter of a day, right? It is going to take time and uh, there are ways in which you might need to go out of your way. For example, when we were trying to identify our potential customers or trying to reach out to them, uh, sometimes we would just cold message them on LinkedIn, right? Now this is something which I had never done previously, but uh, I mean, we, you had to adjust to the circumstances and like, you know, cold message everyone shamelessly, even, you know, that, okay, out of hundred people, maybe only say 20 of them will respond out of 20 of them, say five will agree for a coffee, but that those five are the only that matter for you. Right. So at the end of the day, it's all about the volume of the people that you're trying to reach out to. And then through that funnel, you will potentially find say potential customers that can help you in the, uh, like, you know, the further genesis of your idea. So the first logical step, uh, try to validate your idea before you actually start building and working on it. Right, right, right. So, I mean, uh, it's clear that you have to build an MVP first and then like go on for more things. I mean, because I'm asking this because in some solutions, uh, it's mm -hmm. kind of necessary to have like servers and all. I mean, for example, in your uh, case, uh, you would have the need for like intensive GPUs and all, right? So, right. I mean, so how do you go about funding this? Do you bootstrap it yourself? Do you go and ask VCs? Do you apply, like in your case, uh, you had applied for an accelerator program, but I mean, obviously there's no fixed path right. for this, but like, uh, I just want to know your thoughts on this. So. Right. I think, uh, again, very uh, relevant question. I think as far as the bootstrap VC funding or the accelerator, there's no one size fit all model, to be honest. I mean, uh, to determine, you know, whether, what kind of funding you should really be taking or should we just continue the bootstrapping that you're doing? There's no right or wrong answer, to be honest. Uh, there are of course several factors at play. It depends on the maturity of your product, uh, the current growth, the growth challenges that you're facing 
it could be the uniqueness and also the opportunity cost of scaling or not scaling fast now let's say if your idea seems to be uh, coming off well and you do feel that you have a need to scale uh, then again it would be uh, dependent on your growth target and incoming revenue so the growth target and incoming revenue are i would think the two metrics that can essentially help you to determine what kind of uh, funding or bootstrapping you should be going on for let's say you have yourself set up a particular growth target and you already see a particular amount of revenue coming in and based on that you can uh, take the decision of whether you really require vc funding to increase that revenue to meet your growth target or are you good enough with the incoming revenue to meet your growth target in which case you would continue to bootstrap uh, however uh, the major uh, thing again here could be uh, like how where exactly do the accelerator programs fit into all of this right so the accelerator programs definitely help someone who is doing it for the first time right for the first time entrepreneurs i feel the accelerator programs provide a good support system and the network using which you can gain immense knowledge and uh, it's it's really important uh, to be in that kind of network and uh, ecosystem because otherwise if you are outside of it uh, there is very little help that you actually are able to gather on your own but using the accelerator programs uh, you kind of get most of the knowledge that you as a founder would take like say um like you know the 2x amount of time to learn as compared to in being a accelerator program where you can uh, learn it in half of the time sets and similarly even if you're not a first time entrepreneur the accelerators they bring in the expertise and the network right uh, for example yc uh, which is one of the pioneer um, like you know the accelerator programs it brings in the network and prestige for the future funding that you can essentially end up getting same thing for the tech stars 500 startups or the google launchpads of the world right so coming back to your particular question that what exactly uh, like how do you even sustain yourself uh, with the bootstrapping vc funding and uh, your accelerator program i think it totally depends on uh, your particular use case if you are very very early i would definitely recommend finding a accelerator program and especially if you are building like a deep tech product which requires the use of gpus and all right because the accelerator programs they have a partnership with the different uh, cloud platforms like aws gcp azure etc so they can provide you these credits that you can essentially use in your first year to build a mvp and then ship it out and apart from it of course they provide you some seed funding as well the pre pre seed funding which can really help you in maintaining these additional costs that might come to you you can hire an intern or someone that can work along with you on this particular idea So especially if you're very early early stage I think uh, go for uh, accelerator program definitely they are valuable and also they help you if you're a first time entrepreneur but if you feel that you have enough knowledge about starting up if you have already done your own research if you are confident enough then bootstrapping is also not bad there are there are many people who have taken the path of bootstrap and have done well uh in the future so vc funding is not really a criteria of the success of any startup right i mean if that were the case oyo would be the most successful startup right now uh same thing for the like you know the other startup the we work and all but definitely they're not doing well right as you can see in the news so it's it's all about i would say the stage that you are in and depending on the growth target and the incoming revenue and also the challenges that currently your product will face in terms of the industry that it is in and the kind of technological solution that you are bringing uh, i would say those are the factors which will determine it 
excellent excellent i mean really cleared up uh, many doubts so one uh, nice question is uh, is entrepreneurship first unique in that uh, you don't have to have an idea to go uh, to it or are all accelerator programs like that right i think uh, efs is <laughs> unique quality the crazy thing which other people from other accelerators might feel but apparently it's been doing well for them so far with uh, almost many of their startups now like you know adding up in the total valuation more than a billion dollars right now uh definitely it's it's crazy to think that you know you are entering into accelerator program without an idea but then again the whole premise of the ef is that it brings together people from two different domains who otherwise would not have met right i mean take the case of ai pilot itself uh, i come from the technology domain the big data and machine learning domain but my co-founder comes from the fmcg background now in a regular setting i would not have met someone so senior from the fmcg background anywhere in my network the best network that i might have had would be the technological people around me say from google microsoft at best right but i will never meet someone from a non technological background and especially from fmcg yeah uh, but i think that's a that's a unique quality of ef that it is able to bring together such connections and then the kind of companies uh, that they are creating are really unique in that matter because uh, what we at ai pilot are trying to bring is a revolution in the fmcg industry uh, which is otherwise a very traditional industry so there is not much of the technological advancements especially if it comes to ai and all that has happened even the market research standard process which these companies use has not changed for decades and uh, using the ef you are able to propagate such ideas which are disruptive in their particular spaces i mean i know multiple of my friends who have like you know started their own tech tech company or in the manufacturing tech where again the kind of startups currently that are there in the ai space are very very low so i mean uh, ef is one of those um, unique ones are uh, to be honest uh, others they definitely as per my knowledge they require you to have some team and also an early traction by the way i think yc definitely wants to have you some sort of traction where you have at least a few recurring customers or some customers at least uh, same goes for the tech stars and the others uh but of course like there are the other one there is this other one the antler which again is based out of um, like singapore and it has expanded globally of course in many different countries now uh the antler also does not require you to have an idea and a co-founder you can essentially join the program uh for the network and find your co-founder there and ideate on the um like whatever the idea that you are working on and finally scale your company from there uh and apart from it i would say the singapore and india both have like you know their own share of different accelerator programs but most of them as per my knowledge require you to at least have a team and some sort of early traction yeah yeah probably the usps of like these accelerator programs are too i mean this thing so yep uh, rakesh yeah. do you have any question and also the thing is yeah sorry go on no no i was yeah you go on yeah sorry so i was saying that uh, many of them are very specific as well some will focus on your b2b uh, others will focus on b2c many will be market specific for example grow which is a food tech accelerator program uh, it is the first agri tech food tech accelerator program out of singapore it is very much focused on agri tech and innovations in the food tech and many uh, like you know but most of them actually focus on the early stage traction uh, is what i have uh, mainly seen apart from the few exceptions uh, most of them want you to have some sort of uh, early customers right right uh, rakesh do you have any questions on this 
Yeah, Himachu. Uh, so, a couple of questions following this. Uh, sure. First of all, can you tell our listeners about any accelerator programs going on in India right now that they can enroll in? Um, I think okay. In India, I have not that much experience to be honest, but I know uh, Entrepreneur First Backlog program is definitely there. So you can uh, apply for that, and the best part is you get paid for like you know attending this program, right? They essentially pay you like a monthly stipend for finding your co-founder and also for finding your company if you are able to get through the program. Uh, apart from it, uh, but uh, there is also the GSF accelerator program uh, that's there, which I've heard is like really really good. Uh, there's Sequoia Surge, but then again, it's it's based on like you know some sort of traction that you need to have. Um, so there are a couple of uh, other accelerator programs as well, which are very much specific to the corporates. Uh, uh, for example, there are a few by the um, which are FMCG focused. There are a few which are healthcare focused. Uh, there are a few which are rec tech or finance focused. So it again depends on like you know what is the industry that you are in and what kind of solution that you are trying to build. Uh, if you are trying to build a deep tech solution, I would highly recommend you. Try going through one of these accelerator programs, but if it's something like a B two C, which you feel is more of a marketplace, then maybe bootstrapping is also not a bad idea. Got it. Got it. That's amazing. And one of the other things that I want to ask you is how to go on doing market analysis and judge the size of the market, uh, especially SaaS based startups. So consider our example. We're finally undergrads, not enrolled in any accelerator program. not attending any networking events but passionate about startups so i i guess it's just a few days back when i was discussing with shashwat and a bunch of friends uh, regarding a few ideas that we had in mind which can be turned into some real business opportunities according to us but we have absolutely no idea as to where we can go to look up for the market size of those ideas we have in mind right i think uh, most of the information about the market sizing and all comes from the people that you try to learn it with to be honest uh, let's say if you are trying to estimate the size of anything in say fmcg for example or say in finance you would try to speak to the relevant people in that particular domain right so for example when we were trying to estimate the market size for the fmcg the first thing that we did is uh, speak to our advisors right now the advisors who have been in a particular industry for quite some time they are able to give you the estimate uh, numbers and note that the total market size or uh, the total available market size the tam is these are all um, numbers which estimate right nobody can be equally exactly right about these numbers uh, but the way that you estimate is is based on that particular industry so you try to potentially find okay how many potential customers that you will be serving and then how much can you actually charge them so that's the simplest model right you try to find out the total number of potential customers and then you multiply it by the amount that you will charge them which is going to give you your total available market but of course like these are considering the regular scenario uh, of course there will be uh, not everything you will be able to uh, reach out in the total available market so there is the concept of sam like you know uh, the served available market like how many you can actually reach out with your sales channel so there are and then they, you also have this target market concept for a startup like who will be the most likely buyers right so if you consider more like a like your circle then tam will be the total available market will be your uh, biggest circle and then within it you will have some served available market which essentially means that how much you can reach with your sales and then finally the target market which is how many buyers out of those sales channel are actually going to convert so sam is like your innermost circle in that particular uh, thing right so now um 
how do you essentially go about identifying these numbers? So how do you go about identifying the total potential number of customers you research, right? So that's the bottom line. You got to research, you got to talk to relevant people in that particular industry and uh, try to find out, okay, how many potential customers that you might be able to serve and how much could would you be able to charge them, right? So that's again a number that is based on hypothesis. You never really know. But then again, the mom test helps you in this part as well, where you try to, when you're trying to bounce off the ideas, you also try to understand how much they would be willing to pay, right? So there are multiple factors which then go into it. And then you, and on the basis of this only, you're able to estimate the total uh, available market size of your idea. Uh, but then again, that being said, of course, it may change with time. You might need to revise your pricing policy later on uh, and other factors as well, right? For example, the COVID-19 itself is going to cause, uh, say, a economy or an industry impact. Then your time might even reduce to, say, half of it, right? For example, many of the companies who are, travel, who are targeting the travel tech, for example, might have to reduce their market size now, knowing that they cannot actually serve the whole market now that the market size itself has uh, reduced. So that's there, uh, especially for the B2B side of things. Um, for the B2C, also you try to assume the, like, you know, these multiple factors where you try to assume, okay, how many potential customers say in a city it can reach to. So depending on your go-to-market strategy, let's say if, you're at, uh, if your strategy is to start from the metros and then go down into tier two cities and then finally into different geographies, that is how you are going to establish your total available market as well. So you're going to start by doing the guesstimate from your uh, metros, and then you will uh, dive down and average it out on the tier two cities and then finally into the geographies. And by taking into account, okay, but it's the average number of population out of that population, how many of those that you feel are going to convert and use your particular product and how much will they be able and willing to pay? Right. So these are like multiple factors. I'm talking in a very simplistic manner, to be honest, but there's like a lot of factors that you need to consider and then finally come up with this number. Uh, but the best way is uh, to speak to someone who has already done it because then he, he or she will be able to provide you much better insight about how do you go about it. Got it. Got it. So I, I think the, these uh, concepts uh, that you mentioned right now, like Sam or um, Tam particularly. So I believe that we can add it in the description of this episode. Uh, and uh, listeners can maybe check it out on Google after this. Yep. Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So like this brings me to my next question, which is that, uh, I mean, all this work is kind of like hidden work, right? I mean, nobody thinks that you will have to research so much on the idea before like starting uh, your company. So uh, there must be a lot of hidden work. I mean, like this. So I just wanted to ask, like, especially in the early stages, are the boundaries of work clearly defined on like what a CTO has to do, what a CEO has to do? Or, I mean, is there a lot of overlap? I would imagine there is a lot of overlap, right? Right, right. Uh, okay, before I start on the boundary, uh, let me tell you about what exactly are the expectations of the CEO and the CTO role, right? So CEO is, is the chief executive officer is supposed to look after the executive processes, uh, the business operations, the sales and the marketing side of things. And for the CTO, his ultimate thing should be to look after the vision of the technology and how the different products are helping to achieve the vision of the company overall and also do the hiring and then the scaling of the product and uh, so on. Now, uh, as you mentioned in the early stages, yes, definitely there is a big overlap in the roles and also it depends on the kind of nature or the relationship that you have with the co-founder. There are multiple cases in which uh, both of you will need to make the decision. Uh, but then again, as you begin to scale, 
the time comes when you start to define the boundaries and the best is to define these boundaries in the very beginning so that uh, you don't have a fallout later on right uh, now why that boundary defining the boundary is really really important is because the first factor is the decisiveness now decisiveness is uh, like you know decision making or the quick decision making is really important to any startup the agile decisions will help you sail smoothly but the more time the decision really take and linger on the slower the speed of the startup growth will be so it becomes really important that any decision that you have um, like you know you are able to take that uh, immediately or like you know in a short span of time which brings me to my next point that because of the clear boundary you will be able to avoid avoid the repetitive work right um, because once you have defined the clear boundaries then you know okay where exactly um, like you know where exactly is the people uh, who are assigned to it can take the decisions on their own now when it comes to the executive positions um, only 20% of the time i would say would be spent in the decision making the 80% of it would actually be gone into the exploration of the same uh to give an example let's say if we need to hire uh, two backend engineers or say two data scientists uh my time will actually be going uh, majorly into like you know talking to 100 plus uh, data scientists and then finalizing them on to two right so this process of like you know 100 to 2 is actually going to take up 80% of my time and then finally only the 20% is going to remain to finalize uh, one out of those two data scientists to actually hire for the company right now this particular and that's where you essentially bring in the other co-founder so when i am uh, talking to 100 people i don't really need to involve my uh, co-founder because i know these are the decisions which i can make on my own if i really uh, need his help i might take at some point of time but uh, otherwise i will try to do them on my own right so that he doesn't do what i am already doing and this this these are the kind of boundaries that you essentially define in the very beginning that okay these are the areas that you know i should be able to make the exploratory decisions on my own while uh, in the terms of the final decision making is where you take a collaborative approach to uh, come up with and also like you know the disagreements might happen um, as well uh, it's no akin right i mean several founders have had had like you know fallout and all uh, because of some issue or the other and uh, also the disagreements happen when the priorities are very different uh, for example let's say if you are building a particular feature um the ceo of course will focus on the customer satisfaction because he feels that you know that's that's more important and you on the other hand would be um like you know focusing more on the fast delivery of the products with maximum features and uh, on the timely delivery uh, obviously uh, like you know both of these tie up in the ultimate vision of the company uh but then how do you like you know try to find a middle ground is let's let's say if you had to ship like five features you only try to like you know ship three features which are really really crucial and you do them perfectly but then rest of the two you don't really do uh, go ahead with those right so these are the ways in which you try to arrive at a middle ground and like i mentioned uh, only 20% of the time is where you essentially are going to come across it other 80% of the times you will be in a position to make those decisions on your own right 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 so, yeah i mean it's uh, it seems pretty important for conflict re- resolution as well i mean someone has to take the stand on particular topics yeah uh, true true yeah also uh, like okay so the co-founders responsibilities i got that but like how do you define anyone's role in the company for example uh, what does the head of innovation do so i mean how is that decided right okay so uh, one uh, lesson i think uh, i would um, like to point out here is that the first 5 to 10 employees um they are uh, just like jack of all trades right 
So these will be the people who are uh, really eager to learn quickly uh, any new responsibility that is given to them. And the reason being that the early few roles are constantly going to evolve in an early stage startup. So one day you might be working on engineering, the second day you might be building a data science model, the third day you might be deploying it, right? So there might be different things that you will be doing as an early employee at an early stage startup. And that's why it becomes really, really, um, um, like it becomes really, really difficult to like, you know, fix down that, okay, you have to work only on this, especially for the uh, early employees, right? And, uh, and there's this, um, like, you know, the whole policy of hiring slow and firing fast, which is even highlighted by how to start a startup uh, series by Sam Altman, uh, which essentially like, you know, uh, talks about that when you're hiring your first few employees, you should be taking a lot of time to evaluate them. Uh, but of course, like when you're firing uh, someone, you should just do it rather than allowing them to linger on for a longer uh, amount of time. But anyway, I don't want to go into that uh, road. What I want to focus on is the hiring slow part where you try to take a lot of time to identify such potential uh, people who can really help tomorrow in like, you know, scaling your platform. Because you don't know tomorrow what exactly you're going to do, right? Many of the time, the early stage startup pivot uh, from what they are they were originally supposed to do to something else. And that's why you need people with such flexibility in them that tomorrow, let's say, the tide turns uh, and they are also able to turn the ship along with you, right? Uh, for example, let's say because of a COVID-19 uh, case, something happens to travel tech industry and now they need to redefine their entire strategy. So how do you really go about uh, that, right? So that's why you need uh, smart people who are really able to like, you know, switch and mold and uh, into a, any, any role that is being given to them, any challenge that is being posed onto them. Uh, and I mean, finally to answer your question, yes, uh, it's very difficult to define the role of the early employees. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, uh, like, you know, what are the kind of things uh, that you really want them on? And obviously you will look for those skills, but at the same time, they should be quick learners that they are able to pick up on anything new, which is being given to them. Right. Right. Awesome. Awesome. So I want to extend this basically based upon the hiring part that you mentioned. So how does AI palette under you, know, you and your co-founders leadership is making sure that you hire the right kind of people right now with the deep technical expertise, passion and enthusiasm needed to build something out of scratch. How do you judge all these qualities in an interview? Right. That's the first part of my question. Right, right. I think, yeah, that's a, that's a very relevant question. I would say again, um, there are multiple ways in which we try to gauge into uh, their personalities, right? So apart from the usual technical rounds that every candidate needs to go through, which again, like, you know, try to establish a certain level of the technical skill that you might have. Uh, apart from it, we also have like, you know, the culture fit round where we essentially try to understand what is the motivation of joining a particular startup, right? And we also try to look into their particular background and uh, see what are the companies that they have really worked with, what is the kind of impact that they have made in those companies. Uh, for example, and we don't just hire for a particular role that we are really hiring because we know this particular role is going to evolve in the future. So we hired someone with the expectation that whether he or she will be able to mold into a different role. Let's say if we bring him in today uh, in this particular role, whether tomorrow he or she can take up a different role and then continue to work equally good in that role as well. Right. And this all comes by actually having an hour or even sometimes going up to two hour long of discussion with the candidate mm -hmm. itself uh, and trying to go into their, uh, like, you know, 
not just about the work but also about the like you know the family side of things uh, what exactly is the expectation what exactly has been their overall journey uh, to arrive at this particular point and why exactly they are applying for ai pilot right for example many of the candidates we have turned down simply because they were looking for a higher raise now that is not the kind of culture that we really want to promote at ai pilot if somebody is simply coming for a hike from the previous job then it means that uh, he or she might leave us tomorrow for a, another lucrative job that's out, out there in the market right so i mean of course we understand that money is one of the factors but then that should not be the sole driving factor so when we are interviewing someone we really try to understand what is the background research that they have done into ai pilot do they even uh, have they even gone through our website uh, have they actually spent some time on the articles on the linkedin uh, sources that we have and what not right have they actually made an effort to understand the fmcg how exactly we are using ai ourselves and uh, then come up um, and talk about it in the interview process so that's that's one of the things that we try to judge the other thing is of course we uh, look for the several triggers which are you know if you are frequently changing your company then we know okay this person is jumping ships uh, from one place to another and then we refrain from actually even uh, taking them into the further rounds um, apart from it uh, the technical rounds also we try to have some external perspective so apart from having all the in house technical rounds we also have an external round where we um, like you know have certain founders that we already know in the singapore or in india who essentially try to talk to them and understand their motivation because an external perspective of a person will um, like you know will be completely different from what your might be for example there are many cases in which i myself have become biased because of how technically good uh, the particular person was but then uh, because of this uh, this bias i might actually end up hiring him even if he's not a right culture fit because i get blinded by the technological uh, skills that he has right but then once you bring in an external person to uh, like you know evaluate this candidate that's where uh, he has no background about uh, his uh, previous rounds right so then he basically starts from scratch and is able to give like a holistic picture about that person so these are the different ways in which we try to mitigate our own risks and try to identify who are those people who are actually going to help us in the scaling x from 10x right and of course like you know with time we also learn and it's not that uh, we will be perfect in this uh, but we sure as hell want to make this process perfect with time so that's that's our goal got it so i assume that the startup has finite resources and i'm sure that you want it to be nicely utilized on the people you hire yep exactly so, yeah another thing that i want to ask you about this hiring in uh, particularly the the payment part so do you feel that a, that equity offering equity plays a big role in motivating people to go and work out of their comfort zone in a startup because most vcs i think do have a good term for this also right skin in the game so do you feel that skin in the game helps yep i think uh, definitely it does and uh, we were actually fortunate to have like you know couple of uh, uh prospective candidates who it eventually turned into employees who were actually interested in the uh, equity more than the salary part right uh, and in some of them uh, were actually negotiating for the equity which really gave us the confidence that okay these people are driven by the company and its vision rather than the money or the monetary aspect alone and uh, what i feel is like you know the startups in the very beginning they should not even shy away from giving the equity now the major point being that you know employees is what is going to help you in achieving that fast growth or achieving that x to 10x growth right and uh, generally also like you know 10% esop is a norm in the industry and many of the startups they even have higher than that 
and uh, what i've seen in the industry is uh, many of the founders uh, the first time entrepreneurs including ourselves uh, we were a little stingy in the very beginning to shell out the equity Uh, like a lot of equity to the um, like you know the early employees but then when we talk to our investors and you know advisors and all of it we could see that how potentially um, like you know this particular uh, giving up the equity is important because as you mentioned it brings the skin in the game but apart from it it also keeps the um, like you know the employee uh, motivated and worry and like you know to be concerned and care about the vision of the company right and if a company is actually going through a rough patch then that particular um, person or the employee is actually going to help you in brainstorming how to fare through it right uh, but if he or she is just dependent on the monetary purposes then that will be the sole driver and he or she might just try to like you know go or uh, work in another company and leave your company at that particular point of time right so that's why it's it's really important and the other thing is that the equities uh they like you know they don't really you don't really get them in the first year itself right so they vest over a period of 4 years and if a employees actually sticking with you for a period of 4 years then he or she would have already done much more than the equity that you are really giving him right um, because the startups in 4 years they can achieve wonders and uh, that's why even uh, today we are not really uh, shying away from uh, like you know shelling out equity uh, to the employees that are coming into the game and we actually insist on the equity uh, and we try to help the employees also understand how exactly and how valuable this is so we help them in understanding how through the multiple rounds of valuation their equity is actually going to grow become uh, is going to become bigger and let's say after this round uh, you are actually going to potentially become a millionaire right so you have to help them realize it i have seen many of the startups they don't do it uh, but i think they should do it uh, like you know help the employees understand what exactly the equity is all about right uh, and i think uh, there is a shift in the employees that i can see that now more of them are more more and more of them are actually getting aware about it uh, i think the flipkart did an amazing uh, job there that because of the walmart acquisition i think a lot of them became millionaires overnight and i think that brought about a culture of like you know how exactly the equity is valuable and now everyone seems to be asking the questions around those so there is definitely a culture shift um, like you know happening in this uh, asian uh, space uh, in the silicon valley it has been a norm uh, for quite long i mean um, like you know when i talk to my friends in the google facebook etc they always tell about like you know how the startups they try to lure away the best of the candidates from these companies based on the equity and equity alone because uh they might not have the like salary to match the google and facebook but what they have is a promise of a good work the responsibility and also a good equity so yeah the shift is definitely happening and i'm uh, hoping that it you know it will continue to do so yeah awesome way that's an amazing answer i think i think probably the best answer we can get on this topic <laughs> yeah thank you awesome insights yeah so like moving towards shifts uh, in the in the in the industry let's move towards the future a bit so uh, like do you have any thoughts around how ml ai will mold itself for people in the non tech community i mean uh, say there's a product manager or maybe higher level management so like how will their roles change with ai becoming more common in workplaces right um okay i i, I think i remember um sundar pichai's um quote from this uh, who talked about like you know how how ai is like you know one of the most important things uh, that humanity is currently working on and it's even more important than the electricity or the fire right now ai is like getting inculcated into every industry if you see at it right be it manufacturing uh, or be it traditional industry like manufacturing fmcg etc to the tech savvy industries like you know the fintech and others 
and definitely the roles of the people or the employees are also constantly evolving around it um, i remember uh, there are many uh, startups that have started coming up a cdo which is a chief data officer or some of them even have like cio which is a chief information officer who essentially like you know focus on the data science initiatives uh, within them many of the uh, startups have actually started uh, like you know having the dedicated data science departments in them and uh, the whole idea is that you know you start small from the data science department so that everyone interacts and gets familiarized with how exactly the data science is being used so while uh, there might not be an immediate shift in the roles in the current roles of the non tech people but definitely they are getting exposure to more and more of data science so coming back to the question of how the product managers roles are getting um, like you know diversified or changed even they are getting exposed to the data science uh, solutions that are out there so even when they are building the uh, like you know their products they are keeping in mind how exactly the data science can be incorporated into this right now uh, with this exposure they know okay how exactly how important the data that this particular product is going to collect can later on be used for monetizing it or for like you know showing up the ads or can be used for a third party and what not right so they have started thinking about all these angles which is a good thing that you know like people are really starting to think about in different different directions uh, having like a holistic picture 360 degree view of the entire product and i am hoping that will continue to happen and uh, even in fmcg for example many of the brand managers are really really getting open to work with the startups and like you know understanding about how ai can actually help them so we talked with like you know the big size companies uh, the big mncs like pepsi coca cola kellogs etc and all of them have started having their own uh, data science team which are doing like really really uh, magical stuff and they are very happy to collaborate with the startups who can essentially help them in that and the facilitators of all of this are the brand managers themselves who actually want to like you know understand and see how the ai can help them in the decision making process so while uh, it's not an immediate shift uh, it's a gradual shift but everyone is getting uh, exposure towards the technology and uh, it's only a matter of time that you know uh, the data science is actually going to get ingrained in everyone's uh, day to day life yeah awesome great okay so while talking about we've been talking about fmcg industry right from the start of this podcast so can you tell me one maybe two or maybe even more industries that are going to be deeply impacted by ai in the future i am particularly looking for names where machine learning practices you know are not so common right now but will be a huge deal in the coming 5 10 years right so um, i think yeah when i uh, think about industry so even before i get into industries uh, let me uh, talk about like which of the works in the ai space that i feel are like you know really really going to revolutionize uh, the things so one of the major works is currently happening in nlp especially with the text generation and the multiple languages and all so it's it's one of the hottest areas with bert elmo uh, transformers etc coming up into play and this really ties up like you know quite nicely into the voice assistants like siri alexa and also the huge amount of data that is getting generated every day right uh, like 90% of the data that exists today has been created in the last two years and this data size is actually going to keep on increasing uh, every year so one of the areas uh, where i feel um, like you know a huge wave is happening is in the rectech or in the compliance space which is essentially uh, the law or the legal law where a lot of data currently exists and it's one of the traditional industries right you would have seen like how uh, there are so many movies of lawyers who are really um, like you know trying to like come up with the arguments and everything uh, based on the deep study of the data that they have to do uh, 
uh, on the research document but how exactly the ai is really helping them is uh, it's creating a knowledge graph and like you know trying to understand through these complex documents uh, able to establish the relationship so that when you ask it a particular question it is able to churn out the answer right and uh, that's how and it is becoming contextual in nature as well so it's able to determine how the different laws are related and it's helping the legal process as a whole uh, in a very um, like you know a uh, um, revolutionary manner so that's one of the industries where i can see uh, like you know a lot of transformation happening and especially with the compliance uh, like you know changes that are coming up in the recent past uh, as you can see because of covid 19 there are so many uh, compliance that have been coming up there's a lot of uh, discussions going on around the pdpa and you know the uh, personal data usage and all where a lot of the startups are you know like there are new regulations coming in and then how exactly it changes the policies of a particular company uh, right now somebody has to actually do all of that stuff manually but then there are startups coming who are trying to automate all of that try to understand what policies are coming and you know how exactly they are going to change the current company's policies and all of this is being done in a very automated manner so that's that's one of the industries i feel uh, is going to make waves and the other one um, the other area where i see ai um, like you know doing like a lot of awesome stuff is the computer vision where you know uh, from the object detections now we are moving on towards gans right uh, and uh, apart from it uh, one of the immediate um, industries where i can uh, see this happening apart from the usual suspects like the automobiles where the self driving and uh, gaming and the healthcare is happening the one of the other uh, industry that is getting revolutionized is the manufacturing now uh, manufacturing uh, so far has been very tra traditional in nature to be honest uh, and especially if you look at like you know the past uh, manufacturing in the past decade if you look at the manufacturing industries not much has changed but now uh, with all the iot and uh, with the like you know the computer vision models that have come up it's it's becoming really really easier to like you know um, identify uh, and uh, streamline the whole process uh, one of my friends is actually applying the computer vision and deep learning to detect the like you know the defects that are there using the computer vision uh, for example you would have heard about this news of samsung phones um, i think it was s8 i believe which had these uh, like you know the um, faulty designs and was resulting in explosions all over the place and uh, i think that was a big le uh, lesson learning for the entire industry that defects uh, should be the topmost priority of any manufacturers and right now there are a lot of uh, computer vision models that are getting deployed in this industry and uh, so these are the two industries which i feel are um, definitely getting revolutionized but of course there are other industries as well which are tied up to these two technological spaces which are nlp and computer vision and definitely we can see like a lot of stuff happening so be on watch out for uh, both of these areas i would say yeah awesome. that's nice that's actually uh, yeah one thing i uh, like got in mind one thought uh, while you were talking about privacy policies is that uh, do you have any problems with getting data from companies i mean is there some sort of confidential data that if you would get you would benefit from it but you don't right um i think yeah, we do yeah so we do work with company data uh, a part of our models actually are trained on the company data uh, but then again when you are actually getting access to the company data you are uh, getting into nda agreements with them which essentially prevent you from using that data for any other companies right now uh, that is very very important because uh, at the end of the day you don't uh, want your models to like you know really give out that particular knowledge gained from these this kind of data to some other companies right and for example the pepsi and coke they have very severe restrictions around these that they don't really want 
uh, their data to be merged in any way or conflicted in any way. So you have to keep their data even in like separate data centers altogether. And these are the kind of agreements, of course, you uh, get through to it. But then again, uh, a significant part of our data actually comes from the public domain as well. Uh, and there we don't really have any restrictions because uh, that data is open. So uh, there's no one single party who can actually claim authority on the same. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, for the other side of thing, where is the company data, you have to set up the uh, security policies and the data segregation uh, pieces into the place, uh, put it everything uh, inside the VPN so that nobody is actually able to get access to it. And you try to maintain it uh, as segregated as possible from the other companies. So these are the different ways in which you try to make sure that your data is not getting leaked or uh, like, you know, being accessed in some malicious manner. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Right. So one of the things that I want to ask is that uh, the world is not betting big right now on crypto, cryptocurrency particularly, which was not the case probably two, three years ago, you know, when suddenly things got really huge, huge in this area. So do you think you see any change that AI and machine learning can bring in this industry in the future? In the cryptocurrency, you mean? Yep. Hmm, right. <laughs> so uh, to be honest, uh, I am quite uh, ambivert about uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I mean, I know that, okay, like, you know, some of the uh, popular key opinion leaders have been pushing for it. Uh, some of them have been vehemently against it. So it's all uh, about a personal choice to be um, like you know honest i on uh, one hand has been um, like you know have been more of the time just observing and then seeing where exactly it flows so i haven't been um, like you know giving it much of a thought that how exactly it is going to be impacted from me what uh, the only uh, takeaway is that uh, the computing power there's a lot of work um, like you know happening in that particular space and i believe that's that's one of the things which cryptocurrencies currently use uh, especially the miners and all. And uh, there's like a lot of significant research work that is going on in that space. So I can definitely see some improvements happening there. Uh, and even in terms of like, you know, identifying the fraudulent transactions and all. So right now, uh, many of the, like, you know, your monetary transactions or the others, uh, there are fraud algorithms that are out there. But for cryptocurrency in general, uh, there are not many uh, startups uh, that are trying to work on this. I know one from our own college, uh, one of the seniors from our own college uh, who is working on this Merkle science. Uh, they are actually working on uh, solving this particular problem. Uh, but then again, not many startups are uh, focusing on this right now. But I think yeah, with the time, uh, like, you know, the people get more and more interested in cryptocurrencies. And also with the, like, you know, the push from the government, uh, I think definitely these, um, like, you know, this industry will also see a huge rise in, like, you know, the adoption and hence the propagation of the startups. But right now, it's more of a lukewarm response is what I've seen. That's great. So I believe that we had an amazing start to the Nave No More podcast. Thank you, Himanshu, for joining in today and taking time out of your weekend for this. So yeah, this episode, yeah. Do you want to say something? No, no. I, I guess uh, thank you so much, uh, Rakshit and Shashwat, for um, like you know, inviting me to your inaugural session. And I am happy that I could share my two cents with you guys. And uh, best of luck to you guys for the rest of the sessions and let me know if I can help you guys in any way. Else. That's great. That's great. So we, uh, you know, I believe that's pretty easy for us to stretch this podcast another two hours, but we're going to stop now and have you come back again in the future, just like Lex Friedman on Joe Rogan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's good. Okay. So thank you so much once again and uh, hope to see you again, Imanchu. Thank you. Sure. Sure. Thank you guys. <laughs>
Jolly Shashwat. We're eagerly looking forward to your feedback. See you guys in the next episode.